This is tape 2509. The date today is April the 7th, 2000. Hey, first, I got a test to give you. I made up this little story to go along with the test, or I made up this test and then made up the story to go along with it. I don't remember which. Now, here, since we're not usual people, I'm going to tell you what the test is in advance. I'm about to tell you a story I made up. Now, here's the test. Can you listen to the story? I'm going to talk slowly, and I'm going to speak primarily in English. And I will try and pronounce most syllables. Can you listen to this story I'm about to tell and hear that it's about the mind rather than the environment. See, now I bet you think, well, Jesus, now that you've said it, you know, I can do either one. Don't make yourself look dumb before the test even starts. <laughs> Two guys who hadn't seen each other in a while, one of them came to town, they went out riding around, they stopped and got some hamburgers and drinks. And they got back in the car, they just got them to pick up window and they're riding around, they got through and they're, they're yakking, got through with their drinks and their eats and they had the wrappers and the empty cups and the driver just crammed his down between his legs and kept driving. And uh, they kept talking for a while and they was moving off the freeway and got in, went through several kinds of neighborhoods and finally it was the one just driving along through one residential section, and the driver rolled his window down, reached down, got the paper that his sandwich had been in, and the empty cup, and he just threw him out there on the sidewalk, right in this nice residential section. And his friend was glabberfasted. Well, you know, bewildered, even. And he says, I am aghast. And then he looked aghast. <laughs> he says, years ago, I can remember when you were a fired-up environmentalist. I can remember when you used to rail about seeing trash out on the highways, and you were always talking about how inconsiderate people are. You used to marvel, you said, at wondering how people could live in certain neighborhoods and certain streets you go by, and just garbage, just people just throw it out. He said, I can't believe you just did that. And the driver says, yeah, he said, well, I my attitude really hadn't changed. I just want you to notice what I do now. Remember the test. He says, if I've got garbage in the car and I'm going to dispose of it, I will wait until I get into a real nice neighborhood like this where I know people won't let it stay there. Someone will come out very shortly and pick it up and put it in the neighborhood. <laughs> Did you pass the test? Can you hear that I was talking about man's mind and not the stinking environment? Now, all right, if you don't want to admit it. Well, here's the stuff I wrote for today. Headline, what this actually is. No matter what Persian, Indian or Chinese name be given to it, and regardless of whether it be in the 20th century BC or the 21st century AD, 
What this is, in the case of select individuals, is no more and no less than the brain's dissatisfaction with specific aspects of its own instinctive activity. Anyone who says it to be other than this does not understand what this is actually about. Yet another distinction between everyday minds and the select few is that the former say, quote, everything changes, while those with certain eyesight can distinguish between that which moves and that which is significant. To a fully awake mind, the only things of significance that could occur in this universe would be if the universe could move away from itself. And you may take this to mean the universe literally and the universe as metaphor for the mind. It doesn't matter. It's all the same. One guy goes ahead and expresses aloud that most ugly of facts. Quote, as long as I am asleep, I don't mind being asleep. And such a simple fact to harbor such a complex lesson. Skunks were never, never bothered by their smell until they were told that they stunk. And accepted the judgment. Ah, uh, but skunks are such simple creatures. Not at all like men. Look, what say we dispense with the fables and talk about things as they are? Sure, you don't mind being asleep. That is, a man's normal mental condition, as long as you are in that normal mental condition. Which in truth is to say that your brain has, has produced thoughts in you that say you, that is your brain, is not satisfied with its normal efforts, which it has made you call being asleep. But it only produces this thought whenever it is momentarily not in its own normal condition. In other words, even though your brain says at times that it is not satisfied with the work it is doing in its routine state, as long as it is in its routine state, doing its normal work, it is quite satisfied with its condition. And you and the desire to awaken are left hung out to dry. Was that verbally complex? enough? I didn't think so. It's obvious to me. Another distinction between those seeking the goal and ordinary people is that the latter have magical abilities. For instance, ordinary man can be in many different places at the same time, while an awake man can't. Yeah, I understand that one too. 
another of the uncredited talents of the human brain. In one part of its normal operations, it portrays singularly a creature who can capture itself. P.S. Being enlightened isn't being able to set this creature free. P.P.S. The creature being the operation. Would it help if I read them faster? How <laughs> about backwards? <coughs> Moving not by one be only can. That was ridiculous. Because I hardly understood that one. So I imagine what a challenge it was to someone who didn't write it. Moving not by one be only can that race. All right, I'll do it right. Back to the reading. And now for some sporting news. There is an obscure race that can only be won by not moving. And now, an oblique neurological update. No matter what time it is here, it's always some other time somewhere else. Instant correction. No, it's not. <laughs> now to correlate and put a wrap on these two stories. No matter what the quality of its sight, to the eye of a hurricane, everything is hurricane. And always remember our dual mottos. Thoughts don't kill brains. Brains do. And brains start thoughts, and brains can stop thoughts. Or something along those lines. Now a story regarding a boy who had at oft times been told by his father that being awake is no more than acting naturally. One day, this lad asked his dad, quote, if a man is, say, naturally clumsy, then works to appear not so, does he then act unnaturally? <laughs> and another tale entailing an originator and an offspring. A son told his father of an elderly man he had met and described in detail certain of the man's characteristics which were similar to those his father had said were indicative of a man awake. Then the lad looked quizzically at his father as if to say, well? And his papa immediately turned the questioning back on the boy by saying, if a man shows all the signs of being awake, is he awake? Taking such a line of sight on this matter always brings to mind the considering that with one small exception, a dead man has all the necessary characteristics of a fully enlightened and liberated being. I've pointed that to you before. He does, except for that <laughs> one small exemption. I started to say, I guess small is a judgmental degree, but 
Knee-deep into the proceedings, a man suddenly stood and said, Never mind all that self-remembering and being mindful stuff. The question you should all be considering is this. Can you make your brain think what you want it to think? And as a murmur swept through the audience, the man continued. And the further question is, how do you separate you from your brain to even give this a try? If you do not understand the present circumstances, how can you reasonably expect to ever change them? How can a man living in Paris believe that some special effort will eventually take him from there to Istanbul when Paris is an illusion to begin with? <coughs> Thinking that you can and will go from one state to another is expected and acceptable in the beginning, but somewhere down the line you must take a good close internal look at what it is that the thoughts in your brain is calling states. I didn't write any more about that, but for the time being, I've been always aiming to bring that up because I've always found that it's always good for a thigh slapper. When I think how casually me and everyone else, but we'll talk about ah the states of consciousness or the state I'm in, the state of mind. And as I try to constantly stay aware of, my brain is saying that. This thing in my head is coming right out of there, working my tongue. My brain says something about, well, you're not in a very, or you're not in the state of consciousness that you could be today, are you? And I think, my brain is saying that I'm not in this. Is. And of course, if you're not pretty awake, you don't find it funny. You think, well, by God, that's true. I'm going to have to buckle down. <laughs> I've got to be more watchful of this. And then you think, wait a minute, it's my brain just said that. that yes, I've got to be... I've got to be more careful. I've got to hold a grip on the operations of my brain. That is my mind. <laughs> Back to the reading. Imaginary geography. I was still talking about the illusion of going from Paris or the belief that you can go from one state to another, as I used to refer to it allegorically from Paris to Istanbul, which is all right. You've got to think something along those lines to ever get started. But I was pointing out that somewhere you've got to realize that the difficulty, if I may put it that way, of going from Paris to Istanbul is that there's no such place as Paris. It's your brain talking. And when you say Paris, is your brain saying, well, I think so-and-so. And you don't realize there's something squirrely afoot here. So... That's what I was talking about. Back to the reading. Imaginary geography is necessary at the commencement of this journey to the goal, but in later stage, stages it, has, it is nothing but an encumbrance. The only real map there is is in your brain, and the only places to go are in there too. One man who knew asked himself, how comes it how comes people like me to disparage subjectivity when what we do is the height of subjectivity? 
Headline, the all-around good time covered all description of being asleep. I'm too busy to look right now. <laughs> the difference between the view of the ordinary and a select few is that the former say, use it or lose it, while the latter wish that the opposite were so. <laughs> Picking himself up from the dust, a lion ex explained his tripping by the fact that his attention was totally on some prey he had been chasing. A man's excuse is confined to the thoughts he is chasing. Or to be technically exact, due to the brain's overall attention being momentarily seized by the activity in one of its regions. Thoughts, in case you didn't get it. Oh yeah, follow-up metaphorical fact. An enlightened man doesn't have to watch where he's going since he no longer labors under the illusion that he is going anywhere. Oh, and we have a revised update to a story color covered earlier this week. A certain man, man found a large creature in his house. So large, in fact, that it was damn near the size of his house. He attempted to get the creature out, but it occupied so much space that it left no place for him to stand from which to give it a push. Oh yeah, the new headline of this story is Startling Discovery Made Concerning the Connection Between Concentration and the Great Liberation. One guy proffers this observation, quote, The mind part of my brain would not be out of control and annoying were it not for the thoughts that it has. But, which then leads me to figure out why the brain would do such a thing to itself. I pondered this question for quite a while, says he, and even considered the possibility that this attitude is unique to me. But even if true, that still doesn't do anything to quell my dissatisfaction with the whole affair. But, that then forces this question. If the brain is responsible for its own dissatisfaction, then who is it to turn to for relief? Yikes, I thought. Yikes, I thought, as I laughed. End quote. Headline regarding the ever-popular topic of happiness. Happiness, as practiced by routine minds, is staying sufficiently busy as to never notice that you're otherwise. Or, if you'd like, version number two. <laughs> Happiness is in never having to respond to the call, hey, look over here. 
A father said to his son, If your desire is to fashionably move in the midst of the herd as effortlessly as possible through the four dimensions, then never watch what you're doing. It's that simple. And under his breath he muttered, I only wish that doing the opposite was. Follow-up fact. A clumsy, distracted man is a mortally contented creature as long as his distraction does not become known to him. The real test is, is anybody getting anything out of this? But we are much too decent sorts, us one and all, to expect anyone to answer that. Headline, if. If ordinary men are on a rocket ship, then the enlightened are in rowboats. And without even any oars. And by their own choosing. One man said, For 40 years I chased ghosts. At least now, I let them come to me. <laughs> Fact you can determine the degree of a man's understanding by the degree of wear on the soles of his feet. A boy so addressed his father, quote, You have said that if a man could be totally indifferent to himself, he had soon achieved the goal. But is it not also true that if you either reject or accept the idea, you are then far from the goal? And the elder looked away as though he hadn't heard a word the boy had said. Later that day, the boy's mother said to his father, is this goal you keep speaking of with the lad, but in this goal you, you keep speaking of with the lad, is not the reality behind the aim for the brain to become unconcerned with the thoughts it creates? She paused as if considering this question herself, then continued, And if my measure of it be correct, then I am forced to ask myself, how can an artist be indifferent to his own creations? And if such a thing is actually possible, then why would an artist even bother to create? Can any of you conceive of enlightenment being a word and concept actually meant to represent a condition wherein the brain becomes so consistently and unnaturally aware of the endless thoughts that it produces that it is as though a light has been shined on the whole operation, bringing into view that which was previously hidden in the dark? To wit, the brain is no longer so ignorant of itself. What more liberation can there be? Headline concerning the considerable matter of indifference. How can I hate you if you won't stand still? A man said to a mystic, To me the reward in thinking about thinking is that it gives me the feeling that I have been freed from the normal confines of thinking. Is this an illusion on my part? 
And the mystic replied, no, it is not an illusion. And the man asked, then what is it? And the mystic told him that there was no word for what the man had described. Okay, so you really, really want to know what this thing is actually all about. Okay, I'll tell you. It's like this. One man's brain had this thought, quote, how can it be that my greatest distaste is for the thoughts that involuntarily arise in me when? Without these thoughts, remember this is the brain talking, without these thoughts I would have no awareness of my own existence. You're not satisfied? You want more? You want a more exact definition? Well, if that's what you want, that's what you'll have. Those wishing to awaken are people who want to see smoke without there being any fire. And a boy asked his father, do I have to stare directly at the sun? And his papa said he didn't. Then the lad said, but it's there every day. And his father said that in spite of that fact, he still didn't have to look. And this motivated one man to muse. That's what he calls it when he doesn't want to think about the fact that he's thinking. <laughs> At any rate, he so mused, quote, if it wasn't there, I wouldn't look at it. And this possibility, based on his own past experience, being apparently impossible, made him further muse, hmm, then maybe as I look, I could become nonchalant about it. I have to remind everybody to get carried away with my great acting and theatrics that you forget that I'm talking about the brain and thinking. The guy's great muse was, quote, if it wasn't there, I wouldn't look at it. And of course, if you didn't look at it to the point of staring at it, it this idea about being asleep or not knowing something or being deluded or being uncertain wouldn't exist. If thoughts could be like free-range hens in the brain, a great open plain, we wouldn't be here. Of course, I don't mean that as a knock. I used to say things like that. Well, if it wasn't for so-and-so, we wouldn't be here. Then I think, well, where the hell would I be? I mean, there's always greater dangers lurking. <laughs> Could be home watching TV. I mean, there's one in my house. God knows how it got there, but the greater dangers. And finally, apparently, in response to all of this, that is, I've read tonight, one guy says, quote, I find myself in a curious uh, situation. 
Even though I've spent much of my life in wanting to and trying to keep my dog in his own yard, the truth is that everything interesting that I own, he brought to me from one of the times he ran off. God help me, but I do so love that creature. Uh, all right, the story that I gave you a revised edition of was the hippo story from Wednesday, <laughs> but the one that I read you tonight was that a certain man discovered a large creature in his house, a creature that was so large, in fact, so large that it was down there the size of the house, so that when he tried to get rid of it, it was taking up so much room that he couldn't find his place, enough space for him to stand and get his balance and to even give the thing a push. Now you do know I'm not talking about large creatures and hippopotami. <laughs> Consider this, I have a whole new startling being funny, scientific revelation that neurology, psychology, no one seems to have ever noticed. I perceive, if I don't forget to point out to you, that some people in the past, our kind of guys, did have an awareness of it. I don't know how they looked at it, but they at least had a metaphorically expressed awareness. I interpret it that way. It's this. Feelings. Well, first, does everybody understand? Let me make sure that this, my story is understood. The man's house and this large creature, the house represents the brain or the mind part of the brain. And this large creature represents thoughts. And so this guy, by trying to clear this creature out of his house, that was so big it was taking up most of the room, consider thoughts are taking up most of the room in what we normally call the mind, which is simply one area of the brain, as far as I'm concerned. It's the way I'm using it. The cortical level up. Then what the story represents, my intention was, that thoughts down there take up all the room in the brain in the mind, but not quite all, which is the only reason that we're sitting here. But I'll get to that indirectly. <laughs> this is not true, what I just described. This is not true in feelings. And this is the part that I don't, as far as I'm concerned, I discovered it. And now you can discover it. Feelings take up all possible room that there are for feelings. There's never any empty space when you feel some way. If you become mad, or if you get frightened, there is nothing comparable in feelings 
as there is thoughts in the mind. If you are frightened, you're frightened. Now I'm into an area I can start trying to describe what I'm talking about and it would wear me out. I can tell because there's no easy way to describe this. All right, let me try a little bit to make sure. If we picture the, the mind, that is the cortical functioning of the brain. If we can say that area, let's say to be a circle uh, with a five inch diameter, then I am saying to you, and of course as always, don't take this as some theory or just some metaphor because I'm telling you something that I have, that I know it's true, it's going on physically. Then if the mind, the brain's thinking area is a five inch uh, circle, then I'm saying that that circle is never completely filled with thoughts. There's never, because I should put this in more dimensions, the volume, that is X amount of volume available in the brain for thoughts. But that X amount is never fully filled, that X volume, never. Whereas if we look at feelings, if you want to consider at least where it seems to come from, physiologically speaking, the old area of the brain down around the thalamus and the limbic lobe, then let's consider that down there we have a Y sphere with whole Y mass. I'm saying that down there the area available to feel is always full. There is no unused space. I can start taking the other side and say from the mind's viewpoint, that's not true, but I'm not even going to bother with it. If you try to look at it, I'm sure by now you people will get it. I don't know how you get it right now. But when you are frightened, you're frightened. There's no area of you that's not frightened. You can be frightened to different degrees. You can be frightened a little bit by hearing a noise in the house. Or later that day you could be frightened. We could say, of course this is the thoughts talking, but later that day someone could jump out of a doorway with a pistol and put it to your head. And you could say, well, I was more frightened than I was last night when I just heard a creak in the house. And that frightened me for a little bit, just for a second, until I finally decided it was just the house creaking. But I was more frightened when the guy pulled a gun on me. Yes. But at both times, the amount, the space available for feelings, that is to be frightened, was completely filled with feelings. That is not the case with thought. The mind is never completely filled with thought. There's always room. This is, if anybody's interested, to me, if it'll help you at all, it's like I have pointed out, it's no secret, that all machines, even the most precise, all machines must have a tolerance in them. You can't make pistons and the chambers in which they are moving. You can't you can make them fit perfectly. 
but they can't fit perfectly. They cannot take up all of the volume inside the block, inside the cylinder uh, sleeves, or they won't move. So there's always tolerance. There's always a space within the cylinder sleeve where a cylinder does not exist. There is always in the mind area that is not filled with thought. But from our view, if you can follow this, it is like the man in the large beast. There's not quite enough room to push what is there out. <coughs> it doesn't take up all the space because if it takes up all the space, we wouldn't be here. Now, has anybody jumped ahead? Under ordinary conditions, what mysticism has already referred to people being asleep, ordinary people, and I say to you, I can say it just clear as hell. I'll leave it to you. You should be able to see it also. Their minds are not totally, the space available for thought, even with them, is not totally taken up for thought, but, which a bunch of these papers are about tonight, and I don't think you, maybe you'll get it now if you can remember it, but with ordinary people, they have no cause to notice it. It is not discussed. No one literally thinks about it. I say to you that much of ordinary people's lives are driven by the reality of this, but it's not seen that way. Boredom of all sorts, the pursuit of all so any kind of secondary activity is a manifestation of this. But it does not upset ordinary people enough and to drive them to the ridiculous kinds of things that we do, that mystics have always done. They'll simply turn on TV, go to a movie, call a friend, read a book, take a nap. If you can't take a nap, have a couple of drinks, and then pass out and take a nap. I was going to say that I have never seen this noted specifically, but it came to mind, to my mind, how about the old ideas that uh, hit me from several sources? Uh, one that uh, Christianity has thrown around for years and years and years regarding Jesus, this whole thing about no room at the end. How about Muhammad had to finally get out of the village where he was a well-respected, important figure in the village, but he had to keep leaving and go up in the mountains in a cave because it was like there wasn't enough room. And it was just a little small village, my God, out in the middle of, you know what is now Saudi Arabia? In the 600s? Well, yeah, I mean, I'm sure that they were walking all over each other. You know, <laughs> suburban sprawl. Or Buddha. His father was a prince. He had a palace. And he had to get out. It was too confining.
How about a variation of it? Assuming you got any of that. If not, maybe you'll get this. It is the fact. Now remember, we're talking about the area of the brain that produces what we call consciousness, that produces thoughts. We're not talking about the silent, non-conscious life of the body. Just to arbitrarily and meaninglessly divide them for the sake of speech. I say to you that the area the brain has available for thoughts, the fact that it is never totally filled by thoughts, accounts for men's love of war. Not the physical defense of territory, but some men's, not all men's, but some men's love of war. It accounts for a life of crime. It accounts for all kinds of dangerous activities. Does anybody get it? Okay. Life feeds, we got to start somewhere. The universe feeds what I call life, same thing. The life feeds your individual nervous system through the environment, as we call it. The nervous system feeds the first part. Nervous system goes up and first it feeds, goes through the old part of the brain. By that I mean the feeling part. The feeling part then feeds the thinking part. But I point out to you again, and I do not see this as theory. I do not see this, of course, as a verbal model, but observing yourself, and it's not simply a model. It is going on. Life feeds the nervous system. The nervous system first feeds feeling, the old brain. Then feeling feeds thoughts. But when we get to thoughts, see, up to that point, life is feeding the nervous system all the stimuli it can take. If anything, well, that sounds conditional. It feeds us more stimuli than we can take in, as you know. You're taking in stimuli right now, below the cortical level, more than you can take in. You're li trying to listen to me, and if you stop for a minute, you can hear noises in this room. God knows where they're coming from. But you know what I'm saying. The door could be cracked a bit, and there could be crickets out there. There's a far sound of traffic going by. There is more stimuli than your nervous system can take in. So if again, if there were some, if we look at the whole area of your body, whatever the volume would be, Z volume of available room for stimuli, it stays full. There's more than you can take in. It stays full. Then that feeds the old part of the brain, feelings. And I'm saying to you, your feelings stay full. And then feelings feed the area available for thoughts. But there is when this whole thing of the all available volume being filled, this is where it breaks down. Because the area available in the brain for thinking is never completely filled. And we all know this, or you do as soon as I point out. Even though I say to you that the area available for feeling is always full, always filled, always. Under ordinary con conditions, our everyday life, it's of a very, we could say, low level of intensity. 
that most of the time you're not feeling anything in particular. Just in the way ordinary humans speak of it. Most of the time, you're not feeling particularly angry. You're not feeling sad. You're not feeling fearful. It's mostly just come see, come sigh. Or if you're more verbose, you might say, can't complain. <laughs> but what you're saying is, you know, I can't brag. I don't feel like jumping up and clicking my heels, but neither can I complain. It's just, you know, I answered you the first time when I went, eh. <laughs> Now, I repeat to you, this accounts for a life of crime. Everyone should know by now. Criminologists have gotten down and figured this out years ago. Nobody liked everything else in life. Ordinary brains do not see past what is the superfluous intent. But anyway, it's a long time ago, statistically, criminologists and other people with weird occupations have got down and figured. They've gone and done surveys. They just they could sit in their office and do it off paper, I guess. They looked at the prisons of the United States. They looked and they, they charted out what people had been convicted of and how much time they got in prison. And it turns out, you know, first of all, I said that that the fact that the way our feelings, even though they're normally full, all spaces filled by feelings, all space available, the feelings that we have under routine everyday conditions are of a very low octane. That's not a judgment, just figure it out for yourself. Just life is pretty much of an even keel in the civilized world. That is the world where you're not fighting for daily subsistence. They figured out, without beyond any question, a life of crime, you can't attribute it to greed. That is, that's the first answer is, you know, when do you steal? Well, you know, it's easier than working. They figured out without any doubt, the life of crime is the worst possible investment of your time. I didn't try to memorize it, but it came out something like that they went over a survey of 20 years. There was no small thing of all the people arrested for armed robbery. I think it includes everything, bank robbery, major felonious theft of all sorts. And they looked at the amount of money taken, all the way from bank robberies to muggings, and then the, the amount of time the people served. And a life of crime <laughs> for major, major thieves, it came out something like their time and effort was worth to the tune of about 11 cents an hour. <laughs> that is what it came out. The math they stole and the amount of time they did. And then they let them out. You know, they got early. And they took all in consideration. Of course, it's very common, as you know, that the guy go right back out within two or three days. He's you know, held up a fruit stand and got caught. And psychologists and all sorts of people have pondered this. You know, why do they keep doing it? Why the recidivism? And why the fact that it's such a rotten paying occupation? And why almost all major felons are caught? And why they do it? Does anybody get what I'm pointing out? The thrill. Let's just make it simple. People hold up banks. They say it's for money. They do it for the thrill. And I'm going to tell you what the thrill is. 
And I've even heard that that's no big observation on my part. Uh, I have no doubt that there's been uh, criminals that said that the biggest, uh, the main part of the main attraction of being a bank robber is the fun of it. You know, the money ain't bad. They'll throw in a little joke. The money's not bad. You know, where else can you make $50,000 for two minutes' work? But it's not that. It's the thrill of it. The thrill of just walking in and pulling out a gun and they're in the middle of you know, 50 people and armed guards. It's the thrill of it. Here's what the thrill of it is, though. I'm, from what I'm proposing to you tonight, is what it does. That thrill starts not in the mind. Of course, it's obviously not a mental exercise. It's not an intellectual undertaking. The thrill is that the mind does know I'm likely to get shot. If a man didn't have thoughts, of course, he wouldn't hold up a bank if he didn't have thoughts, but if you can do it both ways, if he didn't have thoughts, there would be no thrill. But at any rate, he knows that he might get th caught. It starts in thoughts, and so he makes his body, the non-thinking part, go in and do something. And the thrill of it is not only intensifies his feelings for that minute, which he didn't have up until that point. It's much more intense feelings than your everyday feelings. It not only did that, but when they get more intense, they make thinking more intense. No one ever looks at it that way, but it makes the mind. Because people can say, well, it's the thrill of holding a bank because my feelings are just on edge my body. I'm just full of adrenaline. Yeah, 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 yeah. But that's not why they do it. It's not for the feeling part. It's what it does to the mind. Hope I didn't waste our time tonight. How about this? See, all of this, there's conventional wisdom that covers all of this, such as many, as I said, criminals, uh, many people, professional soldiers, uh, will say that, you know, they'd go out and fight for anybody, like soldiers of fortune, that they're not patriots. And why they like battle is the thrill of it. It's the only time I feel alive. They'll say such things as that. And they'll describe it in feeling terms. Specifically aimed to do with the endocrine system, the, the rush of adrenaline, and never knowing from one minute to the next whether you'll be dead, never knowing from one day to the next where you'll be, what kind of odds you'll be facing. Every day, your life's on the line. I love it. I love it. That is conventional wisdom. That sounds like a reasonable description, but I'm telling you that's not what it is. That's part of it, but they stop too soon. If it didn't do something to thought, or as I put it to you another way, if they could not think, they wouldn't be soldiers of fortune. If your brain, if human brains did not produce thought, we would not have warfare. That is, other than over territorial claims. There would not be warfare over ideals, over principles. It is what feeling does to thought. Thought can't do it to itself. Thought can't produce anything. What you are thinking is always injury, is always touched by what you feel. Somewhere, every thought you have has as its progenitor somewhere a feeling. But notice, again, 
our everyday life produces, or in our everyday life, our feelings are almost flatlined. Our feelings are just, eh, nothing exciting. I say to you, that carried just a bit further than with ordinary people, or going off in another direction is what makes people like us pursue activities like enlightenment. Nobody gets it? Your feelings are not, they will not fill up your thoughts. They will not fill up the area. And ordinary people, they fill up the area. They ignore it. I shouldn't say they fill it up. It never gets filled up. But they are able to distract themselves by pursuing just available secondary activity. All sorts of hobbies, intellectual enterprises, reading. It's all it takes. Just to get caught up. Just to get the brain hypnotized with some sensual, sensory stimuli. Because that's all the thoughts have to operate from. They don't have any natural fuel. It all comes from some feeling. And if your feelings are very, are below octane, then thought is. And as I said, ordinary people, they get bored and they go turn on TV. A few select people like us, speaking on your behalf, they get bored. TV won't do it. Books won't do it. Nothing will do it. Religion wasn't doing it. And they end up trying to do this. And what they're trying to do is fill up the mind. There's no way to look at it. Learn to ignore it. But I was going to give another view if you didn't get the one about no room at the end and why men like warfare. How about this? Here's another one that conventional wisdom goes up, you could say, to the old brain, and then goes no further. It's been noted that man is the only creature who will hoard, that man is the only creature that displays greed. I mean, man's the only creature that will have more stuff than he can use, that there'll be a sale on you know, bathroom tissue, and a guy will go by enough that he has to fill up his garage. He's got more, if he looked at it and counted and figured out you know, at his age, he will never be able, he will not eat enough and go to the bathroom enough to use this, but it was such a deal. And he had to move his car out and cover it with a tarpaulin and fill up the garage with toilet paper. Men, we all know this. It's an old story. And I know that psychiatrists or psychologists and other people have attempted to analyze it. And the conventional wisdom from professionals and amateurs alike uh, I've come up with all kinds of notions. I'm sure you've already, you're sharp enough, you're already thinking about them before I can say them, but the idea is that um, it's just, you know, men, certain men have psychological quirks and they will store up more than they need. All right, here's what it is from what I'm proposing to you tonight. If the brain, if human brains did not produce thoughts, then there would be no such thing as hoarding. They try to attribute it to some sort of feeling. I've heard and read about psychologists say, well, the kinds of people that some psychologists say, well, I've done research on it, blah, blah. In fact, that people who are you know, very uh, parsimonious 
kinds of people who hate to spend money, who will save their money, who will buy all kinds of, in other words, excessive, unusable, irrational hoarding of all kinds, whether it be money. We all know those stories that pop up periodically that some old woman who lives in a $2 a night hotel, she dies. And you know, they, they just thought she was on the verge of homelessness because they, you know, they, her friends and the people who knew her found her eating out of the dumpster every night. In some way, somebody pulls up the mattress. Anyway, they find she's got $2 million. And she's been living in a rat trap, eating out of garbage cans. And psychologists come up with such ideas as they say, we've researched it, and many people like this, they were deprived. Here's the easiest psychological take on it, that they were deprived as a child, that they lived un, in very impoverished circumstances, and so therefore when they reached maturity and got to the point that they could make a little money, earn a wage, they were always afraid, even when they had good jobs, even when they made decent investments of their money, they always had this subconscious extreme fear that they would become broke. They saw it happen to their family. They just refused to ever happen. And so rather than even spend money now, they just kept thinking, well, I've got to save it because things could get worse. And so it, there it ends up, a person living in filth and extreme conditions turns out to have millions hoarded away. Do you understand? They attribute it to feelings, that it's an emotional problem, a feeling problem. I say to you, it's not. Bears have the same feelings, they have the same limbic system. They have, there's no great difference. Say, for instance, bears. And it's a known fact that bears, you know, conk out for three or four months, more or less. They don't, they take such a good snooze, or semi-snooze, that they don't bother to get up and even go to the bathroom, much less look for food. So what do they do when the weather starts getting nippy? Them and many other creatures. They don't go out and start finding food and take it back to a cave and stack it all up. They just eat all they can before they get too tired and have to pass out when it gets cold enough. They eat all they can and just put on as much blubber as they can put their hands, get in their mouth. Then they lay down and snooze three or four. They do not hoard. Nobody hoards. No animal saves anything. Only humans do. And you miss what I'm talking about tonight, and plus you fail the test. In retrospect, if you think I'm talking about bears and the environment and hoarding, I'm talking about the brain and thinking. That only creatures, and we, we're it, that have thoughts hoard. But does anybody get it? Does anybody see the connection? And I'm not stretching. It's not a big reach, if you can see it. I say that hoarding is a reflection, and I, I know it sounds metaphorical, but I say that hoarding of all sorts, of, and I don't mean just the outrageous extremes like filling your garage with toilet paper, just of all sorts, any concern for tomorrow is not bear-like. You have to have thoughts to have concern for tomorrow. But if you don't watch it, then your brain goes, well, hell yeah, that's what makes us superior, is we know that tomorrow could bring about, ooh, all kinds of adverse conditions, whereas a bear's too stupid. He just eats 
or a lion or anybody else. They eat until they're full and they get them walk away and leave it for the vultures or that old homeless lady. <laughs> and you, and uh, your brain, if you don't watch it, of course, ordinary people, that would be their response. They'll go, well, that's the very thing that makes us superior is that we have a brain that can think and we know that we should better, if we got food and access today, we better find us some Tupperware, you know, stash it away. <laughs> I might also point out to you all kinds of mystical figures in the past from Jesus to Zarathustra point out you know, that you don't understand the kingdom of heaven however he put it that you know, don't worry about tomorrow you know, you're an idiot to worry about tomorrow and he pointed out he said look at the flowers he used flowers instead of hippos and bears they said, you know, do they worry? Of course, maybe he was more artistic than I am, more poetic. He said, look at the flowers of the field. Neither do they, what is it, toil? Neither do they weave. In other words, they don't work. Yet they live a normal flower life. And look how pretty they are. Of course, I can imagine him saying that and looking at a pretty flower and then looking at whoever he's talking to. You know, like I leave it to you, you know, compare. Anyway, he says they don't work. But I put it to you another way. To what that sort of thing is, you can worry about tomorrow all you want to, but you're still going to die. <laughs> I say what I was getting at, that all sorts of hoarding of any kind, and it doesn't have to be to a neurotic or psychotic degree. I'm saying that you can't think about tomorrow. Now, listen, you can't think about tomorrow unless you can think. And I say that the only reason that we think about tomorrow is that the space available for thoughts never gets filled up. And that's what hoarding is. Of all sorts. If you got God, I hope I'm not really swimming in mud. If you go into somebody's house and they have any food that's not scraps on their plate, if they have any food in the icebox or in the cupboard, then you can count on this. That person has thoughts. <laughs> I say making any preparation, having more on hand of anything than you can use. Books, records, anything, cars, clothes. If you got more than the clothes on your back, then I guarantee you this: there's no doubt you can. You have thoughts, and I say to you that everybody's, the space available in everyone's brain for thoughts is never filled. That's why their closet is filled with clothes. That's why the cupboard is filled. I know it sounds allegorical, but I'm telling you, I can see it clear as hell that there is a specific. It sounds so allegorical. I start not to even say it. But it's not. I can see it. Well, you've got, to, you've got to be able to face this. Were it not for us being able to think, you would not have extra clothes. I mean, you've got to see that. If we could not think, we'd be living like a bear or a lion. If you got hold of some food, you'd eat until you got full, and you'd walk off. You wouldn't wrap it up and store it. 
it wouldn't cross your mind since you didn't have a mind. <laughs> but you would have no thought about, well, maybe I should save this. Or damn, it took me three hours today to chase down something and kill it and eat it. You know, if I'd save this, there's half of it left. If I'd save it, then tomorrow I wouldn't have to go through this crap. A lion doesn't do that. No creature does. They eat until they're full and they walk off. They just walk off. I was going to say forget it, but they, they had not forgotten it to start with. So, you've got to be able to see this. That were it not for us being able to think that we would have no thoughts for the future. We would have no plans for the future. We would make no plans. We would undertake no effort to see to even tomorrow, this afternoon, later tonight. So everybody can see that. But now what I'm telling you is this. This thinking reservoir, this thinking machinery, this space in our brain, this area, this region of our brain in which thinking is possible is never completely filled with thoughts. And so it's not just that we have thoughts that makes us plan for tomorrow and to hoard or to have one extra can of soup, one more morsel of food than you can eat right now. It's not simply that that's due to us being able to think. It's due to us being able to think, but that the thoughts we have do not fill, it never fills the area available for thinking. If it wasn't for this, I'm telling you, physiologically, we would not be here. There would be no Buddhism, no Zen, no Sufism. There would be no history of anybody trying to do anything resembling this. If the large creature that you found in your house, if it took up all available room in your house, you wouldn't try to get it out. You wouldn't be concerned with it. There has to be some little room enough that, of course, this is also an illusion that the brain is, well, it's the camouflage of us creating the sense of you. But if that creature took up all the available room in your house, there'd be no room for you. So the idea that you would want the creature out or that you didn't like him being here or that you had any question about what the hell you're doing here, you understand that would be a moot question. <coughs> It'd be a non-existent question, because if the creature took up all the room in your house, how could you be? This, how could you be? How could you feel one way or the other? If it took up all the room, then you're not going to be upset, because if it takes up all the room, you're not in there anyway. Does anybody get it? Feelings take up all the room in their house, and you're not there. People are not in their feelings in the same way they're in their thoughts. The brain does not produce in the old part of itself, in the old part of the brain, around the limbic and thalamus, that whole reptilian, the old part or even the mammalian part, but the old brain, the center of the brain, the, the non-cortical areas, in that area, now there's no way I can prove this, you just have to, I can't, I, all I can do is tell you. In that area, the brain does not produce a feeling of a self. Now, I know that you say, the brain will say, or you will say, or a person will say, well, that's not true because I have feelings. I talk about them all the time. Yeah, you talk about them. But I'm aware of them. Yeah, you're aware of them, but what's aware of them? The feelings are not aware of themselves. When you say how you feel, it's thoughts reacting to feelings which is their sole source. 
Remember that food chain I gave you that life feeds our nervous system. Our nervous system feeds our brain, but first it feeds the old part of the brain. It feeds the feeling part. And then the feeling part feeds the last part, which is the thinking part. So the thinking part can say, that is, ordinary people. Men will say, well, I don't feel good. But let me, let me tell you how I feel about this. I feel very frightened about this whole affair. And so you could say, if you're an ordinary person, you could say that what I have just said about feeling, not having a sense of self, then an ordinary man could say, see, it's not true. But it is true. Because that's not feelings saying how it feels. That's thoughts saying how it feels. And it never has full information because it's never filled. There's always room. The beast that fills the thinking part does not take up to all the thinking part. And therefore us, the man in my story, you're always trying to do something. You'd like to fill it up, which is trying to put yourself more asleep, that is to get distracted on TV. You're trying to make the beast fill up your house. That is the mind, the area for thinking. People like us take the opposite approach. And we're very few in number. But if you look, well, we try to get it out. Nobody else does that. Six billion people on this planet, they do not try to get the beast out. They're aware it's like a, you know what I'm saying, it's like a marble in a Coke can that rattles around. you got this empty space. If you fill up the Coke can with water, you don't hear it rattling. Was that a helpful metaphor? I understand it. The area that people normally call their mind, it's the area of the brain available for thought. That thing is never filled up. And I've never heard, uh, it's not important. As far as I know, I'm the only person that's ever seen it this way, specifically. But I can see it, and I know that you can see it. If you look, the area is never filled. Of course, that also, I can see it, is, it's a requirement for us to keep changing. It's a requirement, if were it not for that, we would not be living the technologically advanced, the ever-increasingly technically advanced. We would not be civilized. We would not be living longer. We would not have medicine. We wouldn't have science. It's that because there is that area of the brain. But ordinary people, six billion people, unless the brain is engaged in some problem-solving, there's this rattling effect. People can get bored. They just feel yucky. A few people out of the six billion begin to feel mentally strained, you know, stressed out, feel like perhaps I'm losing my mind or what they're trying to do. What they, and the way they go about it is they try to fill in and they will do it by trying to take in additional stimuli. Turn on TV, watch a movie. That's what six billion people do. Mystics, the reality of what people like us are, we do just the opposite. Rather than trying to fill up this one little area that's always left, we try to get in that one little area, there we are, and instead of trying to blind ourselves, instead of trying to make this beast, this hip, hippo, instead of blowing air up its ass by watching a movie and trying to swell it up so it takes up all the room and then you forget, whew, instead of that, we try and take that one little space where you can get a toll hole and we try to get it out of there. That's what the struggle to awaken is. 
I got pulled out to you can't get it out. That's why I went ahead after 30 years and brought it back up Wednesday. You can be indifferent to it. Or as I put it to you, if you could be totally indifferent toward yourself, you'd be awake real quick, very shortly. In rapid fire order, things would go much faster than they have ever gone. And I'll wait another 30 years to bring it back up because it seems unfair since. I know that somebody wants to say, well, how do you do that? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> well, I was going to say, I can't tell you. If I told you the truth, I don't know. So I obviously can't tell you. Oh, I sort of know, but I can't tell you. <laughs> but what always helped me, and I can't believe it wouldn't help anybody else, is learn to see it in a certain way. The closer you see to what's going on, not, not taking somebody's map, not taking a Freudian mapping of it, not taking a Platonian view of it, a Marxian, not taking any view. If you can see what's going on in your brain, then what seems to be our passion toward what goes on in our brain, that is our the way we feel, see? If you can see what it is going on in your brain and it's coming directly from feeling, and that feeling never completely gives enough fuel, enough material to fill up the thinking area, then your feeling toward the thinking area begins to diminish. And I say to you, if it begins to diminish, are you not on the right road to becoming indifferent? All you got to do is keep increasing the diminution of it. Apologies to Duke Ellington. All you got to do is keep increasing the decrease of interest in it. <laughs> and what I always found worked, and not just me, it's obvious from my reading of past history of a few of the would-be mystics. This sounds, I always hate to do it because it sounds so corny in a sense, but if you can actually just finally see what's going on, then that's the answer to everything. If you're no longer as it's easy to say, if you're no longer deluding yourself, which is ridiculous, because it's the brain deluding itself, which I say is ridiculous because it can't do it. But then I leave it to you to figure out well, what the hell is it doing? Why is it even trying? Why do people believe that they're fooling themselves? If you see what's going on, then that's the answer to everything. But you've got to see it. You can't see it by my map. You can't see it by anybody's map. See, that's the humor, the pathetic humor, in devoting yourself. You have to start, but in later years, still devoting yourself faithfully to a system to awaken. It's like a person with bad vision, you know, continuing to rub salt in their eyes or do something. Don't you get it? You believe you're trying to go in one direction and you're doing everything but that. Well, once you see it, I suggest you can join me then and it's pretty indifferent. Not about being alive, <laughs> but about you. Because I repeat, no lion, no hippo, none of our fine fellow furry and feathered creatures on this planet 
none of them feel indifferent. It's indifferent toward yourself. S-E-L-F. Is that how you spell it? Been so long. I got to tell you, I don't know. What I'm talking about, I have found so good when I, it was one of those things I wanted to call up everybody and hold a meeting and tell everybody, and even at the time when I first saw it this way, I thought, Jesus, I'm not going, I'm not going to bother to write people over. Maybe someday I'll bring it up. I hope it went better than I thought, the better than I believe it did. But at least I sit here now and I realize I made the right decision in times past when I wanted to call on extreme emergency meetings so I could point out to you, feelings fill up all the available space there is in the brain for feelings. But the space available for thoughts never is filled. Never. And that's what we're up to. That's why we're here. Now, of course, I saw it all in just an instant. But then once I took two instances and realized what I would be inclined to describe or how I would describe what I just saw and thought, damn, this will wake some of them up. This will really push some of them over the edge. And as soon as I replayed right quick in my mind what I just said about, well, thoughts, feelings always take up all. All available room for feelings are always filled with feelings. But the available room for thoughts is never, ever completely filled. And I thought, well, if I tell them that, I'm going to look out, and there it is. Another one of those oil paintings. <laughs> like dogs sitting around the Last Supper table playing cards, I guess. <laughs> all I can tell you is my best wishes and all goodwill. I wish you'd consider that. Because it's right there. Even if you feel bad, you don't have the dissatisfaction with feeling bad that you do mentally. When you feel bad, at least you feel bad, damn it. You get it? In a sense, you feel bad all over. And I don't mean just physically all over. The area you have for feelings. If you feel bad, the damn area is filled. And if you feel completely bad, you don't feel so bad about it. <laughs> All right, if you're my kind of, if you're a real mystic, you don't, you don't suffer over feeling bad. You don't feel like I'm asleep because I feel bad. Hell, I feel bad. And you're kind of satisfied with it. But you can feel bad, and of course it's reflected in your thoughts, and that's where if you look, you're never satisfied. I put it to you, that's where the idea for revenge came from. Because you can't ever hate anybody good enough. <laughs> Mentally, you can hate them by feelings, but you're prone to kill them. You can't hate anybody. You can keep talking about you. You can talk to your friends about how you hate so-and-so. And you keep telling them what he did to you. How, how you hate him. You hate him and hate him. And they go, yeah, yeah, yeah. Why do you keep saying that? It's because you can't fully hate him in thoughts. There's always room left. And that's why people seek revenge. Does anybody hear me? It's the same thing as going to see a movie. You can't fill up the area available for thoughts with nothing but hate. You can't fill it up with hateful thoughts about him. It won't take up all the room no matter what you do. And so then people seek revenge. They don't know why. 
Well, you know they can describe why well, I won't get even. What does that mean? You know what they're trying to do? They're trying to make the thoughts that they have, the hateful thoughts about the person. They think about, if I go put sugar in his gas tank, maybe, nobody knows this but me as far as I know, maybe it'll make him swell up. And then I'll hate him as much in my thoughts as I do in my feelings. Or I put it another way. This again sounds pretty mundane, but the mind is never satisfied. But why? I'm telling you why. Thoughts will never fill the goddamn thing up, no matter what you think. I put it to you, no, that's one reason people like coffee and stimulants of all mm -hmm. kinds. Because it makes the mind run faster and it sort of gives the illusion, well, well maybe if they keep, you know, they'll, they'll fill it all up. Of course, you can't ever get enough. <laughs> Again, there's always this, that everything is backwards and I have no idea what I'm talking about, that I'm just, you know, you sit here so long and you're so close genetically, or close enough to my genetic wiring, that while you sit here, sometimes it makes sense, but it could be backwards. I could be just, you know, mad as a man, you know, inhaling ammonia all day, a hat blocker. <laughs> which is where mad as a header came from. But it's just, some way you get in here and it seems all right. But notice you got sad and you forget most of it. So that could be the proof of it. <laughs>